as we prepare to, <clears throat> to hear the word of God, please bring an attitude of prayer in your spirits. God of Jesus Christ, give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Feel free to follow along in the bulletin, reading from Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the word of the Lord. So if you're looking at the bulletin today and you're visiting with us, I just want to make sure that you realize I am not Mike Winowski. Uh, he is at a special event today at, at Mount Zion uh, Baptist Church. I, I'm Jim Kirk, and uh, I'm happy to share uh, with you today. We are continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, this, the Sermon on the Mount, as uh, most of you know, contains some of the best-known teachings of Jesus, and as we've seen in these weeks, his focus throughout is on the character of Christians. But it's important to recognize that the foundation that Jesus lays in the very first words uh, in the sermon are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Christians are people who know that they are in God's family, not because of their goodness, but because of God's grace. But if you believe uh, that you are embraced and accepted by God in this way, Jesus makes clear uh, in this message that this faith will work itself out in how you live, in your character, and in your habits. And so as we begin uh, Lent together in this Sunday, I think our text today from Matthew 6 is, is a very helpful one for us. Jesus puts an important challenge in front of us here, and we're going to look at all uh, that we, we read today, but I want to start by focusing on the last sentence of, of the last verse, where Jesus says, you cannot serve God in wealth. By the way, uh, Adam and Chrissy Jeske are uh, leading a, an adult ed class that just began uh, this Sunday for the next uh, uh, five more weeks, and, and it, it was just a great start today, and I highly recommend it. The, the whole class is going to be on, on wealth and finances, and uh, I think it's going to be excellent. So if you weren't able to make it today, let me just encourage you uh, to join us next Sunday at 9 a.m. Some of you may know the, the King James translation of, of that last sentence, you cannot serve God in wealth. The, the King James is you cannot serve God in mammon. And so I want to start by talking about that word mammon and why 
uh, the King James says that, then we'll uh, ask the question, why does Jesus insist that we choose between God and mammon? And then finally, how do we choose between God and mammon? So what is mammon? Uh, why do we have to choose between God and mammon? And, and then how do we make that choice? So first, what is mammon? And why, uh, what, what, is, what is this word? Uh, and why use the word mammon instead of wealth or money? Mammon is the actual Aramaic word uh, that Jesus used. And the, the Aramaic translation is mamona. And uh, the King James was uh, quite right not to translate it. Uh, because neither money nor wealth exhaust what this word mammon means. It's, it's one of these untranslatable words. I, I love words like this. Let me just share with you two of my favorites, uh, which I'll probably butcher the pronunciation of. But one, one is Gaelic, and it's lakela. Lakela is the feeling of being together or, or togetherness. Uh, it can mean the unity between a husband and a wife, the strength of a community, the spiritual wholeness, or even the, the bond that unites all living beings. You can't just capture that with one word in English, Lakela. Uh, the other word, the other word uh, Saudada. Whoa. And when you say it, it just <laughs> explodes out of you. According to one definition, Saudada is a, is a vague and constant desire for something that does not and probably cannot exist. For something other than the present. A turning towards the past or towards the future. Not an act of discontent or poignant sadness, but a dreaming wistfulness. Uh, we might say in English it's longing, but it, it's, it's, it's more than that. So my point is, mammon is this kind of word. It's actually related to the word amen, which is another Aramaic word that we don't translate uh, into English. You can hear the, the resemblance between these words, right? Mammon, amen, mamona, amen. You know, amen means something like surely. It's going to happen. And both mammon and amen are rooted in the idea of something being firm, trustworthy, or faithful. Amen is, is a declaration that God is firm and, and trustworthy, and so that's why we end prayers that way. Mammon is a noun identifying something that can be trusted. It can be money or wealth. It, it often is, but it can be many other things as well a person, an ability, a career. We don't all have wealth, but we all have mammon. So this is kind of abstract. Let me try and make uh, mammon more concrete. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of losing your phone or your wallet or your keys. Now, you know that feeling that you get when you realize that you don't have your phone or your keys. That's mammon, right? Not, not the feeling itself, but it's pointing to a little bit of mammon in your life. Something that you need 
and that you rely on and that you miss when it's not there. The mammon that really matters is, is much larger. If you want to identify it in your life, think about what leads to a feeling of anxiety or emptiness when you don't have it. You might try filling in the sentence, when I don't have X, I feel worried or afraid. Now, do you see why it's important that we see that, that mammon is, is more than money or, or wealth? Some of us, by temperament, aren't that affected by how much savings that we have in the bank. We don't look to our bank accounts for security. But if you take away our job, well, then that's a big problem. I'm depending on my job, not just for income, but for my identity and my sense of worth and, and purpose. For each one of us, it's going to be something different probably, but, but we all have this mammon stored up somewhere in something or, or someone. That's what mammon means. So if, if that's what it means, why must we choose uh, between God and mammon? This brings us to the rest of our text today. What Jesus does in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is put a stark choice before his disciples. Jesus uses three different images here. Each one of these is like a diagnostic instrument that reveals our mammon, what we really trust. Let's look at each one of these. First, in verses 19 to 21, Jesus offers a choice between treasure on earth or treasure in heaven, and he urges his disciples to store up heavenly treasure. In other words, seek true security, not in something created, but in the creator. The ancient world did not have banks or safety deposit boxes or insurance. If you had treasure, silver or jewelry or fine clothing, you had two choices. You could hide it out in the wilderness maybe in a cave or, or dig a hole in the ground, or you could hide it at home. If you hide it in the wilderness, it's exposed to the elements. Moths or, or rust might destroy it. If you hide it at home, thieves might steal it. All earthly treasure is like this. It's liable to failure, like a bad investment, or through unforeseen circumstances, like thieves, and Jesus says, don't find your security in earthly things that will always fail you. Find your security in God. The, the question that we're being invited to ask in this first image is a question of value. What do we value above all else? The second image in verses 22 and 23 involves an, an unusual metaphor, but it, it's a vivid image. Jesus puts the choice before us between two eyes. One eye is healthy. It's like a bright lamp that fills our body with light and color and beauty. The second eye is unhealthy. It's diseased, and as a result, things are dim, confusing, and, and full of darkness. Light in the Bible is associated with God's kingdom. So Jesus is saying, to receive the kingdom, you need a good, healthy eye. But this word that's translated here, healthy, doesn't normally mean healthy. It means single. Again, this is what the King James says. 
uh, I don't normally read from the King James so often, but it, here, I think it, gets, it, it, it shows you what it, what it says literally again. Uh, it says, if, there, if, if thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Modern translators don't like this because it, it sounds like Jesus is saying you have to be a cyclops to enter the kingdom. Uh, but that's kind of the point. Uh, what, what are you focused on with that kind of singleness? What is the one thing that you're driving towards? What is your aim? If it's good, Jesus is saying, everything is going to be in alignment with the goodness that you're heading towards. If you're not in focus, you're going to be stumbling around. So where is your focus? Finally, in, in verse 24, Jesus says you can't serve two masters. And the point here is not that you can't work more than one job, but that it will divide your attention. And in the ancient world, to have a master was to be under the control and direction of someone, and it couldn't be more than one person. It would be impossible to serve more than one master without giving one of them more or less than they deserved. So the diagnostic question here is, what are you serving? Each of these three questions, uh, what do you value, where is your focus, what or whom are you serving, each of these invites us to reflect on our values from different angles, and they challenge us to consider what we worship above all else. I was reminded of the importance of this recently by a movie that some of us watched at our last film night. Uh, the movie's called Sophie Scholl, The Final Days. It's based on the true story of a college student uh, named Sophie Scholl who lived in Nazi Germany in the 1940s. With her brother Hans, uh, she was convicted of high treason and executed after they were discovered distributing anti-Nazi leaflets at the University of Munich. Uh, both Sophie and Hans had been members of the Hitler Youth as young people, but in college, they and a group of friends began to meet secretly in the home of a Christian professor uh, who encouraged them to follow their consciences. Uh, these students formed a resistance movement that they called the White Rose that began to pass out leaflets that questioned Nazi ideology. In the movie, Sophie's spiritual awakening is represented by a prayer that she makes from her prison cell. She prays, Dear God, all I can do is stammer to you. I can do nothing but hold out my heart to you. You created us in your likeness. Our hearts are uneasy until they find peace in you. Amen. It was when Sophie began to believe that there was a truth and a power greater than the state that she found the strength to stand up against Hitler. Most of us are not faced with such a dramatic choice. But for all of us, Jesus says, there is a choice to be made of what we will worship, what we will aim for, and where we will place our hope. You cannot serve God and mammon. So how do we do this? How do we choose between God and mammon and put this into practice in our lives? Jesus tells us in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
It's not enough to just identify your treasure, whether it's money or pleasure or the esteem of other people. You have to go beyond these things to the heart. The heart in the Bible is more than the emotions. It's the center of the whole life of a person's being and doing. The heart is where we find someone's true character, what is most important in, the, most important in them and to them. Sometimes people misunderstand what Jesus is saying about treasure and, and mammon and wealth, and they, they think that he's saying that we have to reject this world. For example, sometimes people misquote the Bible and they say, money is the root of all evil. But what the Bible actually says in, in 1 Timothy 6.10 is the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money itself, but the love of money. Christianity says that God created everything good, but we misuse what he created and we turn it into mammon. So if you love money and you make it most important in your life, it will lead you into all kinds of evil. You will treat other people as just a means to an end, as only customers or debtors, rather than as human beings made in the image of God. You will destroy yourself to obtain or to hold on to your wealth. But at the heart of the the Christian life is a paradox. You get the security of God's kingdom by giving up all your other securities. As long as your treasure or your focus or your service is devoted to something in this world, you will be at the mercy of your circumstances. If your reputation at work or at school determines your self-worth, then you will always be worried about what others think of you. You'll never be at peace. If your security for the future is found primarily in your retirement account, then your anxiety levels will be tied to the gyrations of the stock market. Not easy this week, I know. There's no end of things for us to fear or to worry over. In his book, Making Sense of God, Tim Keller points out that there are two classic responses that cultures throughout history have made to the challenge of our being so vulnerable to circumstances. There are those who say that we should cultivate a stoic detachment so that we are not so emotionally entangled in the things of this world. And there are others who say we need to get as much pleasure and enjoyment from this world as we can. And if we can just get enough sex or money or power then we will be satisfied. The Christian perspective is different from both of these, from both Stoicism and Hedonism. Jesus says later in Matthew 6, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. The choice is not between God and things in this world. The choice is over which will be first in your heart. Keller puts it like this. The problem is not that you love your family or job too much, but that you love God too little in relationship to them. Don't harden your heart against love, but don't give your heart ultimately to things that you can lose and cannot satisfy. Instead, infuse your heart with a sense of God's love and incline your heart to love him in return. This will be transformative. 
In other words, the, the goal of the Christian life is not to love anything less. It's to love God more. So how do we do this? How do we infuse our hearts with a sense of God's love so that we put him first in our lives? We do it by getting close to Jesus. Remember the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. This isn't just some abstract teaching. Jesus called his disciples close to him and brought them up onto a mountain into the very presence of God. When you recognize who Jesus is, God in the flesh, and you believe that he gave his life for your sins, then you're united to him by faith. You're brought into the very presence of God. When you make him your treasure and you value his self-sacrificial, suffering love more than anything else, God's love will no longer be an abstraction to you. It will be a a reality. You'll want to be close to him in prayer. And you'll want to live in a way that pleases him. Let me offer an illustration borrowed from a a 19th century Scottish pastor uh, named Thomas Chalmers. Chalmers points out that it is very rare for any bad habit in us to disappear all by itself or because we've just determined to make a change. What usually happens, he says, is that one habit is replaced with another. So he imagines a boy uh, who is a slave to his appetite and sensual pleasure. But he gives it up because he realizes that wealth will bring an even more refined pleasure. He starts controlling himself in order to make money. But then one day he is drawn into politics and ideology and he gives up his idol of money for a new love of power and moral superiority. Here's what Chalmers says about this process. In none of these transformations is the heart left without an object to worship. Its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. It is only when, through faith in Jesus Christ, as we are received as God's children, that the spirit of adoption is poured out on us, and the heart, brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection, is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires. That is the only way that deliverance is possible. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. Let me just say one final word about this. At no time is it more important that we examine our hearts than when we are going through a difficult time. If we're facing loss, or if we're in conflict with others, or experiencing uncertainty, our natural response is to cling to something in this world in order to control events or people. It's just at these times that it is most important that we turn our hearts over to God and we ask him to be sufficient for us. And here's the surprising thing. When we do this, our suffering may actually become an experience 
of growing closer to Christ and seeing with new eyes the, the greatness of his love. In a few moments, we're going to sing an old hymn, Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross. It begins, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. When we're near the cross, we see the greatness of God's sacrificial love for us and for the whole world. This humbles us because we realize that Jesus had to die in order to save us. But it also lifts us up and empowers us because we realize that he was willing to die for us. He gave up all his treasure in order to make us his treasure. He gave up his life to bring us life. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we are more broken than we realize, but also more loved than we could ever imagine because of what Jesus has done for us. We pray today that you would open our eyes to ourselves and our need for grace. Make us humble. You know our sin and weakness better than we do. But we also pray that you would open our eyes to see the height, the depth, and the width of your all-surpassing love for us. Infuse our hearts with a sense of your love today. Incline our hearts to love you in return. And empower our hearts to love others as you love us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.